the Jewish views on the royal visit to the Holocaust Survivors Center, the organization that offers respite to Israelis in need, and one of Israel's finest exports, singer and actress Mira Awad talks to us about her forthcoming visit to the UK. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. An investigation has been launched into anti-Israel adverts which were put up at stations across the London underground. Transport for London said they were an act of vandalism and that the matter was being taken very seriously. The poster campaign, which was part of Israel Apartheid Week, accused British security company G4S of securing Israeli apartheid. It also asserted that the BBC is biased in favour of Israel. The posters have been removed by TfL. The Minister of State for Schools has praised an Orthodox girls' school in Stamford Hill for its performance last year. In a letter, Nick Gibb congratulated the hard work and professionalism of the staff. In 2015, the school, Yesodi Hatora, was placed in the top 100 non-selective state-funded schools in England. Water specialists from Israel, Jordan and the Palestinian territories have met in London to discuss the possibilities of regional water cooperation – the all-day seminar was also attended by Foreign Office officials, as well as experts in sustainability of the environment. A keynote address was given by Dr Clive Lipchin, a South African who is known as a water visionary. He said it was vital to look beyond politics to rethink water resources, especially in the light of the Syrian refugee crisis. Israeli aid workers have travelled to northern France to support refugees trying to get into the UK from camps in Calais and Dunkirk. The volunteers from Israel said thousands of mainly Kurdish Iraqis had been forgotten, with conditions in the camps labelled treacherous. Those working with refugees have estimated that four out of five are Kurds from Iraq, where the semi-autonomous Kurdistan is fighting Islamic State. And finally, British firms are increasingly trading with their Israeli counterparts, and Tel Aviv is now a top ten destination for business travellers. For the very first time, Israel's most cosmopolitan city appears in the list, which was compiled by American Express Global Business Travel at number eight. That's the news, now the sport with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Sunday morning proved to be one of shocks and surprises in Jewish football. Hendon were thrashed 5-0 in their civil annexing semi-final tie against Oakwood. A result manager David Garbage said was one of the worst performances in years. Meanwhile, Scrabble was 100% winning start to the season was halted in stunning style as they were denied a 17th straight win, falling to a 6-1 defeat to the London Lions. Dov Katz says beating Costas Pampantonio en route to winning the veteran men's singles title at the Wembley and Harrow Table Tennis League's annual close championships was one of the greatest achievements of his career. Katz, who has won gold medals for GB at Maccabea and European Maccabi Games, is now looking to help Maccabi secure a League and Cup open double. And finally, Ron Attias will be Israel's first ever male taekwondo athlete to take part at an Olympic Games. He booked his place in Rio by reaching the finals of a qualifying tournament in Turkey and will be only Israel's third ever representative of the sport at the Olympics. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of 
the Jewish News. I'm delighted to say that Andrew stays with us. Of course, he is sports and community editor, along with editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. Richard, I suppose that we should, as ever, start off with the front page. What have we got this week? Battle for London. There are two big votes coming up in the next couple of months. Obviously, this should we stay or should we go Brexit decision, which takes place in June. But a few weeks before that, a little closer to home, we've got the battle to take over as London mayor, the battle for City Hall. We have just announced on our front page that we are going to be hosting the community's only mayoral hustings on the 5th of April. It's going to be held at JW3. It's going to involve Zach Goldsmith, Sadiq Khan, and three of the other key individuals involved in the race. We've got Jenny Jones standing in for Sean Berry, the Green Party candidate. We've got Caroline Pigeon for the Lib Dems and Peter Whittle for the UKIPPers. We do a lot of these sort of events. The last few have been with Nick Clegg. We've done Boris Johnson, William Hague, Ed Balls, remember him? We did him just before he lost his seat uh, in the recent, uh, well, not so recent now, last summer's general election. So this will be the next one off, the next one we've got coming off the block, and it's taking place on the 5th of April. If you're interested in coming along, it's going to be a very interesting discussion only weeks before we decide the next mayor. You can get your tickets at the JW3 website. Well, there you go. Thank you very much. That's what's on the front page. Let's see what else is happening within the paper, shall we? Andrew, there is a story that sort of was broken a bit last week, really, but it's carrying on, and that's to do with the decline in numbers of Jewish football. What's that? It is, and funnily enough, with my both my support and community editor's hat on, it does involve both. It's about the decline in numbers of Jewish football, which you'd obviously think would just imply Jewish football and sports, but it's much bigger than that because it incorporates the whole community. The damning stat, which is why we brought the story to light in the first place, is that the number of teams since the turn of the century has actually declined. So while there were 64 teams in the league over six divisions, that number now stands at 32 over three divisions, which is a staggering decline. It's such um, a severe decrease that obviously talks have now been held, which we covered in last week's story, involving members of the management committee, football managers, and we're kind of opening up to all our readers as well, everyone who plays football on a weekly basis. But in your professional opinion, as a sports editor, have you noticed this decline or has it been sudden? Has it been incredibly rapid? Would you say that there's any particular pattern as to why these numbers are dwindling? Well, the first thing to understand, it's not just a specific problem for the Jewish League. It's a more universal problem across the whole country. However, having said that, as I said, you know, 10 years ago, there were six divisions. Now there are three. So you can obviously notice the number. It is a, it is a steep decline. This meeting was held last week. And one of the things was to discuss why, you know, what the problems are, why we are getting these numbers. On top of looking at that, we've also come up with, not we, me personally, but it's been discussed, various issues that could be looked at to look at the problem, address it. And these ideas have been put forward, ranging from setting up a new junior league to incorporating midweek fixtures and even changing the whole format of the league into like an NFL-style playoff format, which is quite different, obviously. But these things have to be discussed to address the problems. It's, I think, reflective of kind of an inexorable decline, not only in Jewish sports, as it were, but in terms of the community just being very, very disparate. And how do you retain young people and encourage their involvement in the Jewish community, whether that means going to synagogue or putting on a, a pair of football boots and playing football on a, a Sunday morning? Maccabi is perhaps as much about continuity as it is about sport. So this issue isn't really how do we keep Jewish people playing football on a Sunday but how do we keep them engaged in a proactive way within their community and obviously there are so many different ways now that they can do other things they don't necessarily have to be focused on their own community there's lots of distractions so 
keeping the community together is obviously a very important thing. And it's something that the Jewish news tries to do and tries to encourage wherever possible. Maccabi and the Maccabi Football Leagues are trying to do it in their own way. And they are struggling and it's declining, as I said, irrevocably. And where we're going to be five, ten years from now, I'm not sure. There, It's all these ideas about midweek fixtures, playoffs, etc. It's putting a Band-Aid on, on a wound, I think, that's a, a lot larger than that. So quite how they address it and turn this one around, I'm not entirely sure. It'd be interesting to see what sort of measures they can maybe do in the future. It certainly will. Well, here's watching this space and see what happens. And with any luck, I'm sure that for all those footy fans out there, they will ensure that the beautiful game does survive. And uh, let's move on now to an Islamic TV channel that has been forced to apologise. Richard, what is this story about? Yeah, anyone who's kind of hadn't had anything to watch on TV on a rainy Sunday afternoon and maybe had a look around the sort of 500, 600, 700 channels on, on Sky and come across a, know, an Indian movie or a, or an MTV7 pop video will also have come across these channels, uh, many of which contain preachers and uh, odd sort of charity drives. And, and you're wondering who's moderating this. A lot of it's in foreign languages. You're not really sure what, what's being said or what the motivation is. Well, one would assume that they are being regulated by Ofcom for as long as they are broadcast in this country. So we have to assume that until we're told otherwise. Well, it's reassuring to know that uh, Ofcom have been on top of things when it comes to the curiously named Peace TV, which last couple of weeks broadcast a diatribe, for want of a better term, by an imam in which he uh, expressed lots of different opinions, none of which terribly positive about Jews. In fact, he was calling Jews a cancer and blaming them for the Holocaust, etc. Ofcom's come down very heavily on them, given them a warning they're still being able to broadcast. And to the credit of the channel, who we spoke to this week, they said that they bitterly regret regret it. They bitterly regret it was transmitted. They won't be doing it again. Measures have been taken to ensure it won't happen again. It's very positive outcome to a very negative story. It's a positive outcome. And just to think, he passed away in 2010, the imam who obviously gave this speech. So the fact that they can still run this lecture nearly six years on, it does make you wonder you know, how it managed to slip through. Well, I, I want to say at this stage, because I think in the interest of fairness that I should, that if you look up in history or what have you, I have been caught up in broadcast battles before that I'm not particularly proud of, but it was something that was broadcast completely by accident. And it is easily done because when you're trying to run a station, a program that runs 24-7 or however long Peace TV runs for, it is not always possible to keep on top of the content, especially if you're such a small team. Larger channels, larger network channels obviously have much more rigorous teams behind them, checking everything, ensuring that everything is broadcast worthy. But once in a while, you will get something that slips through the net and it is utterly regrettable. And frankly, I like I said, have been on the receiving end of uh, such an unfortunate incident. And as a result of it, I can kind of understand why Peace TV would not necessarily be able to check, but at least they have made all the right noises. They have said it's regrettable. And I think that that personally, for me anyway, is all we can ask them to do. It's very reassuring that this was just a silly amateur slip up and there was no intent behind it. There was nothing sinister about it whatsoever. It was, as you say, I think they just took their eye off the ball. And let's move on now to the final story. World Jewish Relief, again, something that we picked up on a little while ago, a couple of weeks back, actually. They are releasing a load of records. Records, I don't mean as in singles. I mean records as in details for members of uh, predecessors or families gone by. And now that those are readily available, and I believe they had a good response from it. 
Yeah, they've World Jewish Relief. This is they've digitalized the family records of forty thousand people, forty thousand Jews who arrived in the UK before and after the Second World War, and now they are publicly available digitally online for the very first time. The Jewish News made this publicly uh, made this public announcement. This was actually going to be taking place only a few weeks ago. Since then, World Jewish Relief have had three hundred and fifty requests for information. So. Any of our listeners might be interested to find out, uh, just to plough through the roots of their family tree at that incredibly tumultuous time in, in world history, let alone Jewish history, and, the, and as the great diasporas of European Jews came to the UK after the horrors of the war, can go to the World Jewish Relief's website and hopefully find out some secrets and some fascinating information about their, their descendants and, and, and how they came into this country. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you both very much indeed. That's where we'll have to leave it for this week's roundup of the paper. But thanks to Richard Farrer and Andrew Sherwood. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. This week, the Holocaust Survivors Centre welcomed a very special guest indeed. Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cornwall, paid the site in northwest London a visit, marking her first solo engagement in the Jewish community. She met with an array of survivors and key members of the community, and there through it all was manager of the centre, Aviva Trupp. I met up with Aviva to find out how the day went, and I started by asking her why exactly did the Duchess come for tea? The reason we got a royal visit was last year at Holocaust Memorial Day, one of our members was talking to Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cornwall, and invited her to the centre, to which she replied, yes, I'd be delighted to come. So I think something like 14 months later, it came to fruition. Well, we have to be fair, she's an exceptionally busy lady, so I'm sure that that was her earliest available appointment. So. So she did give us a couple of dates, but we couldn't do them because we were so busy too, because the survivors had a lot of places to go for this year for Holocaust Memorial Day as well. Goodness, does one dare to say no to the royal family? Evidently you do. <laughs> That's not they high was... treason, is it? <laughs> no, no, not at all. They were a very, very accommodating and very understanding, knowing that all survivors on Holocaust Memorial Day were in town at the Guildhall and were attending other events at Lancaster Gate and City Hall and all the other places people get invited to to speak around Holocaust Memorial Day. It's our busiest time. I imagine this must be such a humbling place to work because it obviously, it's a constant reminder of a really dark and horrible era in years gone by. And just the the fact that you've got people here living now as proof that you can overcome the most ghastly adversity. What's it like to work here? It's the most amazing place to work. Our turnover of staff is very low for that very reason. And we have 100 volunteers, 40 of them who are very, very active. It is a very humbling place to work, but I have to say it's also probably the most uplifting job I've ever had. The members themselves, the survivors, they treat this as their, they call it their second home. They say it's a very safe place for people to be. So although we don't talk about the Holocaust every day, people have this common denominator, which makes them able to come here without having to explain or justify themselves and their feelings and what's going on in their lives to anybody else. Tell us a little bit about the work that this place does, because I think that a lot of people have heard of HSC, but maybe are not too aware with what you guys actually do. So what do you do? 
Okay, the Holocaust Survivor Services combine three different areas. We do practical support where people can access social workers. We provide therapeutic support where people can get counselling. A lot of people, as they age, their memories return back to early memories. And they're also having to deal with issues like losing their children possibly before they die. So it's because they're outliving people. They're the most resilient group that we have in our community. And the other side is our social side, and we have a full six, seven-day-a-week program where people are able to access the service. We now even run a shul. And people, it's, it is very uplifting. The other thing is that we, we believe that people should have to make up for some of the things that they didn't have, be able to access anything that they'd like to do. So we have a user-led service. That means that the survivors have an advisory committee. And we cater for all survivors, so really important. So it's child survivors, hidden children, camp and ghetto survivors, the 45 Aid Society. Everybody is equal here, refugees, and, and people, there's no difference between people. They can all access the service equally. The other most important thing, I guess, is that as people age, they may need some financial support. And we have access here for people to go through the claims conference and also to Six Point Foundation, which will only be around for another couple of years. So if anybody knows of anyone who's with, has any financial issues, might need any extra support, really please do come forward. That all does sound absolutely amazing. But let's talk about the reason we're here, the royal visit. What happened on the day? Well, before the royal visit, obviously, we had to check that, you know, in terms of safety, security, make sure everything was in place and that the running order was going well. The main focus of the day was that the Her Royal Highness would meet as many survivors as possible. The focus was not predominantly on Jewish care as an organisation. It was about what the services we do, but predominantly about meeting as many survivors and hearing from them. So the day was just preparing. It was like a pre-Pesach clear-up, actually. So we've done that early for this year. We organised that there were tables laid out with space for other people to walk through, obviously, so it was easy. And the, the visit was only very short. It was for 45 minutes. So the job was to be able to seat Her Royal Highness, give her a cup of tea, best Danish in town, usual Jewish hospitality, which she was delighted with, as were the police, as were all the security people and her lady-in-waiting. Everyone was really delighted when they saw the Danish and the cheesecake. And she met with, obviously, the chief executive, and we also had the local, the deputy lieutenant, Martin Russell, was here to meet her, the mayor of London, Mark Shooter, our president, Lord Levy, and our chairman, Stephen Lewis, and then Simon Morris, our chief exec, and Gail Ronson, the deputy vice president, the vice president of Jewish Care. So people had a line-up to say hello, Then she went straight in and sat down at tables with survivors and she shook absolutely every survivor's hand and spoke to them, which was quite a feat in itself, in the time allocated. Sounds amazing. And it must have been, I'd imagine, quite a surreal experience to actually be here and to be a part of it. Yes, it was actually. It was quite... I think everybody was quite buzzy because nobody knew she was she was noted as a vvip because for security reasons nobody was allowed to know before she came in who was coming so it was announced half an hour and people were balloted because we obviously didn't have enough space for everybody so nobody knew who was coming until the day and most remarkably i think she was so moved about what she heard she wasn't supposed to be making a speech and she took the microphone at the end and made a impromptu speech and thanked everyone and said this was one of the most moving places she had ever been to 
and how important it was that the service was here and the legacy would continue of their story from generation to generation. Wow, what an amazing compliment. Well, just finally from you, before we speak to survivors who had the privilege of meeting her, would you just tell us how anyone can find out more information about HSC if they want to? All they need to do is phone Jewish Care Direct 8922-2222 unless they know where the, anybody in the centre they can come in. We normally organise for people to meet up with people. It's a very confidential service and we will go out and visit people obviously in their homes as well. Well, how about now we speak to some of the Survivor Centre users who were here on the day? First of all, Jill Pivnik, what was your experience? Have you ever met royalty before? I've never spoken to royalty, but I've been in the same company, i.e. at the 70th anniversary of the Holocaust Memorial Day. Prince Charles and Camilla were there, but that's as near as I was to the royalty. So you say you spoke to the Duchess of Cornwall. What did you say to her? Do you remember your conversation? Well, yes. <laughs> First of all, she she wanted to know where I was born. I told her I was born here in London, but my late husband was a camp survivor. And then she asked me where did he come from, and I told her in Poland. And then she asked me how did I meet him, so I told him at a dance and she then asked me, was it love at first sight? So I said, well, almost. <laughs> so in response, you remember virtually the whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then she said to me, also, oh, they still allow you to come to the centre because I'm a widow, you know, and I was born here. So I said, yes they do allow me to come. She said, what do you do here? And I said, Tai Chi. And then she brought in the whole, the rest of the people on the table and saying, oh, what a good thing it is, you know, the exercise and what have you. Excellent. Well, that all sounds brilliant. Well, now let's speak to Eve Kugler, who's also there. Now, Eve, tell us a little bit about your story. What what's, brings you to the Holocaust Survivor Centre? I was born in Germany and I lived under the Nazis and Hitler through Kristallnacht when our home was broken into and my father was arrested. We eventually, the family escaped to France and we spent wartime years uh, in France. My parents and my younger sister, the whole time, she being hidden and he was in camps, I was able to get out of France late in 1941 to go to America. Goodness me. Well, perhaps... On a happier note, would you just tell us what happened when you met the Duchess of Cornwall? What we talked about, I seconded one of the, what one of the other members said about the importance of the Holocaust Survivor Centers to us, that it was a second home. I talked to her about the importance of the fact that we felt that her being with us was an acknowledgement of the importance of the Holocaust, which we think it is so important that everyone remember. And I told her that I and uh, other people at the table all went and spoke to publicly about the Holocaust, that we went to schools. And I mentioned that on Thursday, I was going to speak at a Muslim school, a Muslim girls' school in Hendon, and she was very interested in that and thought that was quite unusual. 
Eve Kugler talking to me there. And before that, Jill Pifnick, just two of the users of HSC. And before them, service manager at the Holocaust Survivor Centre, Aviva Trupp. And they were talking to me all about the recent visit by Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cornwall. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Simon Lederman will be sitting in for Clive Roslin for this week's edition of The Jewish Schmooze. Today, Simon and Adam will be joined by comedian and broadcaster Penelope Solomon and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberitz. They'll be discussing the delivery of Jewish jokes. Plus, Diana Toman will be chatting to Andrew Alexander, the CEO of One Family UK, an organisation who help Israeli victims of terror. Now, Israeli singer, songwriter and actress Mira Awad is coming to the UK. She's performing at the West London Synagogue on the evening of Saturday the 12th of March. Kate Fulton has been speaking to Mira to find out more about her forthcoming visit. And she started by asking her to tell us a bit about her fascinating family background. My father is Palestinian. When he was born in 36, it was Palestine here. But when, when I was born, it was Israel already in 75. I'm half Palestinian, half Bulgarian by heritage, um, but Israeli by citizenship. That's very easy for me to identify with. You were educated in Israel, and were you educated in um, some kind of, I don't know, acting school, music school? Yes, I was. I went to uh, Ramon School, which is a college, a music college for jazz and contemporary music. When I was, I think I was 20, and I studied music. Did you go to the army? No, Arabs are not, uh, it's not compulsory for Arabs in Israel to go to the army. So I was uh, exempt from (laughs) the army, luckily. I don't think I would have went anyway, but luckily I didn't have to struggle with it. So what did you spend your time doing when when others are are doing different things? Because over there you don't tend to go to university a bit later. Yes, but I did go to university, you see. I did study university. I did not finish my degree. I went and I studied English literature and fine arts for two years. So instead of an army service, I did some university and then I discovered that I'm in the wrong university <laughs> and that I should go and study music. And so I left the university in Haifa and I went to Ramon School, which is in Tel Aviv. When did you discover, how did you discover you had a talent for music? I don't think there's a certain moment where you discover you have a talent. I think you're born with something and, and then it's just there. I sing from a very, very early age and I perform since I was nine, nine years old. Perform so where? I, when yes, I home. went on stage for the first time in my life with a band when I was nine. So um, I grew up on stages and it was just this thing that I do. I didn't know that I was going to turn it into a career. That's for sure, because I thought that I would become a doctor like my father and I had all these plans for my life. And then music just took over little by little. And you say that you're not just a singer, you're a composer, you're all you're all rounder. Do you play as well? I play. Yes, I play. I'm not a good guitarist, but I play the guitar and I play a little bit of percussion and and I use the, I use these instruments in order to uh, write my music. I've composed the soundtracks. I've composed music for theater. I'm also an actress, as you know, and I do a lot of things that have to do with performance. Yeah. And how would you describe your music? What's what style would you describe it as? For those that don't know, I'm sure most of our listeners do, but there may be one or two who don't. 
Oh, you're very complimenting. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if most of your listeners do. But anyway, I, I would say I don't like the categories that are in the market because when you say world music, then what does that mean? But uh, generally, it's world music. That's what it's called. Uh, what it means is that it's fusion music. I mix the West and the East and the Arabic with the Western harmonies. I take influences from a lot of places and a lot of, uh, I have a lot of influences, different influences, and I bring them together into my composition. So I guess I would call it a lot of fusion. Uh, I do sing in Arabic, so um, not always. I also sing in English. So it's it's a, a kind of a mix of cultures that that's what I would say. And you're well known here for being in the Eurovision Song Contest. Do tell us about that. What is that like? I mean, it used to be slightly mocked over here. I don't know what it was what it was like there as being. I don't know really why it was why it was teased. It, maybe it was thought of as being a bit sort of silly. Some of the entries, but you're a serious performer. Tell us about it. When I was a kid. Eurovision was a very serious business. I remember, you know, begging my parents to stay up to see this because it was with a live orchestra and there was like real stuff going on. People have worked very hard. And today it's more of a show. I agree. And yes, we were the most serious act in that year of Eurovision. Together with Noah, we did a duet. Uh, it was a very serious duet called uh, There Must Be Another Way that is searching for another way of living here, as in joint living. So yeah, we were actually the serious act of that year, but we came to convey a message more than anything else. And for us, it was a very good platform because it is a, a big platform. It's a huge platform to, to convey a message. Maybe it wasn't the regular message for that kind of contest, but anyway, we thought that would be a, a nice way to convey a, a big message. It was a big message because Noah is... Well, tell us a bit about her background too and how you got together. Well, Noah, I've, I've been working with Noah and still working with Noah for 15 years now. Yeah, that's long time uh, in music. That is a very long collaboration when you when you come to think about musical collaboration. We're not a duo. We are solo artists who have uh, individual careers who keep meeting and working together for 15 years. That's unusual. And that's only because of the chemistry we have on the personal level, both on the personal level and the musical level. We love each other's music and we <laughs> really think that we fit together musically, but also on the personal level. And now so, is yes, it's Israeli. Very, yes, she is a Israeli, Yemenite Israeli. Actually, she was raised in the States. So she's like an American Israeli Yemenite. I don't know. I don't know how would she define herself, but she is also a mixture of cultures. She has uh, her ethnicity and her Israeli background and also the American background. So she also makes fusion music of some kind. The song title, There Must Be Another Way, what did you have in mind? What was The Other Way? We didn't suggest The Other Way. We just, they just know. There needed to be something else rather than we the... We just know that the way that we are having, that we are going or the way that we are heading right now is no good for us and that we need to find another way. And, and we actually believe there is another way. When we sing together in, in such harmony, we see it as a, a suggestion for an alternative reality around our area, around our region, because we don't need to be the same. Noah and I are not the same people. We don't hold the same opinions about everything. We argue and we disagree. And it's fine. And this is the whole point. We're not the same, but we can 
live together and we can exist together on the same stage. And I think that's what we mean when there must be another way. We can still be on the same, in the same space without killing each other. And we actually have to find a way to do that. Tell me, you're coming to London. When? What for? Why? Well, I'm coming in mid-March for two very important events. And the most important one is a concert at the West London Synagogue. As part of my activity for coexistence and the shared living in Israel, I'm a board member of the Abraham Fund, which is an organization that works for establishing a joint living in Israel. And together with the West London Synagogue and especially the Eretz program from the West London Synagogue, we are going to have a concert on the 12th, on March 12th, in the synagogue to promote these ideas, these ideas of shared living. That's lovely. And can anybody go? And how do you get tickets? Of course, just Google it. I'm sure you'll find the West London Synagogue. And of course, you can find tickets and you're very welcome to come, I hope. Um, I hope you come. I will certainly be there. Thank you so much, Mira. The lovely and exceptionally talented, by all accounts, Mira Awad, talking to Kate Fulton there. And if you would like more information on Mira's forthcoming performance at the West London Synagogue on Saturday, the 12th of March, then you can always go to Mira's website, which is miraawad, M-I-R-A, A-W-A-D dot co. And no, I have not left anything off the end of that address. It is miraawad dot co. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. You can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish views UK. Now, life in Israel can be a massive struggle on a day-to-day basis, especially for those who have been the victims of terror-related incidents. Luckily, organisations such as One Family exist to help with such occurrences. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to the CEO of One Family UK branch, Andrew Alexander, about their work. And she started by asking him to tell us how the organisation was founded. One Family, the actual charity organisation, was set up in Israel in 2001 in response to the ongoing terror attacks in Israel. It was actually the founder, Mark and Chantal Belsberg, it was their daughter's bat mitzvah, and they were having a lavish party for guests being flown over from all over the world. And there was this terrible suicide bombing in the Sabaru Pizza restaurant in Jerusalem. I think... 15 people were killed, including five members of one family. Well, Michal Belsberg, whose bat mitzvah it was, she decided that she didn't want to have a bat mitzvah and that all the money they were going to spend on the bat mitzvah, they should give to the victims of terror. I see. And is the UK branch also originated in 2001? That happened just after 2001. It was again at the time when Israel was being blown to pieces. There were a group of friends here in the UK that wanted to do everything they can to help. They got some friends together, they held a parlour evening and they raised a few hundred pounds, did another one, raised a few thousand pounds and they didn't know how to send this money to Israel, what to do with it. So they looked up on, on the internet and they came across this wonderful organisation, One Family. They went out there, they did their due diligence and they saw that that was the perfect vehicle to distribute the funds that we raised here, that they raised here in the UK. Right. And is it still funded privately? There's an office here in the UK. There's an office in New York and an office in Toronto. And that's where it receives all its funding from the sources overseas. Tell me 
me a little bit about the goals, the aims and the goals of One Family. How do you help victims of terror? We help victims in, in, in a number of ways. We work financially, psychologically, physically. We encompass everything. What our philosophy is, is that we can't stop the moment that the bomb went off, but we can do everything we can to give them back the life they had before that bomb went off. Give me some examples of the sort of on-the-ground help, as it were, that you would give a family who'd been torn apart by such an event. Sure. What happens is we have area coordinators in Israel. When there's an attack happens, the different area coordinators are contacted. They go and visit the family, and then they assess their needs to see what they need. So what we do is we look at their, their situation, and we see that they might need X amount of financial help for the next 12 months, which we will we approved. And then we assess them again at the end of the 12 months on how they moved on. Ultimately, we want to get them off of our books and move them from the dependent to make them self-sufficient again. And independent. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not only financial, is it? No, You've absolutely not. You've got volunteers not. who are doing other things. Yes, we have volunteer psychologists. We have physiologists. So people come from all over the country. They come to the One Family Centre and they can have massages. They can have treatments. They can have psychological help. There's nothing worse than a mother who's lost their child and they come to the one family center and they meet other mothers in the same situation as them and they can form a bond with them and they form a counseling group that encourages them and helps them get through they share their pain with each other do you know the total number of families you're helping at yeah the moment? unfortunately we're helping over 3,500 over 3,500 yeah. and that's in israel alone it's in israel obviously. alone and it's growing yeah. unfortunately every day just last week we had the terrible murder right and it's unfortunately growing how do you, or rather, where do you recruit your volunteers from, both here and in Israel? Well, the volunteers here in the UK are mainly to help us do events and to raise the money. What happens in Israel is they have a lot of military service. The girls come in for military service. Instead of doing the whole full three years of military service, they come for a year and help out at one family. We have psychologists and physiologists that they know about one family. They come and volunteer their time for the organisation. Checks are done on all, on all the physiologists and the psychologists. And we thank God we're blessed with people who want to give up their time and help for us. We have over 450 volunteers in Israel. Do you? Can you just give me an idea of what sort of events you're planning in this year, 2016? Okay, well, very soon we have a breakfast with Tim Marshall, who's the ex director of the foreign desk of Sky News and David Horowitz. They're going to be talking to us, their group of people, on March the 14th at Investec Bank. And of course, with Pesach coming up, I noticed that you produce your own Haggadah. Well, we did. We, we produced that for last Pesach. We thought it was a great idea of fundraising. Did it and, sell well? It sells phenomenally well. And, and what we did, we got each part of the Seder service sponsored by someone, so that helped to cover all the costs. Are you going to sell it again this Absolutely. year? Absolutely. We've got some in stock and we'll be selling away. Andrew Alexander, the CEO of One Family UK, talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about their work. And if you would like more information, then why not go to their website, which is onefamilyuk.org. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Muse, part of the programme where guests join us in the studio to discuss matters that are of interest to the community. 
Clive Roslin is taking a well-earned week off. So joining me, Simon Lederman and Adam Bradley this week, our comedian and broadcaster, Benedict Solomon. Welcome. Hello. It's very nice to see you. Nice to see you. And also founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberitz. Welcome, Judy. Thank you very much. Very cold, Judy, as we came in outside. We've warmed (laughs) hands. We've warmed everybody's (laughs) hands today. Now, we are a fantastically funny people. Jewish jokes have long been the source of many a funny moment. We have some of the greatest comedians known around the world, Woody Allen, Jackie Mason, the late Joan Rivers to name but a few. There are many others. I'm sure you have your own favourites. But the question this week we are going to ask is when we hear a Jewish joke, is it ever okay when that joke comes from somebody who is not Jewish? Welcome to that subject. And I'm sure you'll have your own views on this at home. We'd love to uh, talk about that uh, with you when you email and text in at a later date. But um, Judy, let's start with you. You are not necessarily known for comedy, which is the case with Penelope, but you are a performer. Yes, and most of my poems are humorous. So, so yes, sort of my talks are. A few years ago, my husband was a member of a rifle shooting club. And one of the gentlemen there started telling jokes. He told one Jewish joke, which my husband didn't like, but he he didn't say anything. Then he told another and another, and my husband, Alan, was getting quite annoyed. And in the end, he said, do you mind stopping? Because this man wasn't Jewish. and, And he said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. And then three or four other people, and we didn't know they were Jewish at all, came up and said... Actually, we're Jewish too, and we didn't like it. But it takes a bit of bottle to actually say it. What was the nature of the jokes? I don't know. I wasn't there. Mm. But I I suppose you'd be insulted if you're Irish, and I started telling Irish jokes against the Irish. Although we have such a great sense of humour. I mean, how do you feel, Penelope, if if somebody is is clearly not Jewish, but is doing it with all wonderfully gregarious, warm nature, but they still tell you a Jewish joke that is not about them, it's about you? How do do you feel? It's a really interesting question. I think, first of all, we have to establish what is a Jewish joke? What constitutes a Jewish joke? Are we talking jokes that have Jewish content, Jewish subject matter? Are we talking a joke that is told, you know, because you could be a Jewish person telling a joke about anything and the style, perhaps a self-deprecating humour, the wit, uh, whatever it is as a kind of, that could be considered to be a Jewish sensibility without it necessarily meaning it's Jewish in content. So first of all, let's establish what do we mean by a Jewish joke? And then I'll give you my opinion based on that. Um, I suppose it's okay? what, it's what of course it is. I mean, I suppose it's what you what what you believe is a is is a Jewish joke. I guess it's either a joke which has a Jew at its heart, and it may be. You know, we often say about humour, there always has to be a victim, and often it's the it's the key to a good joke is you're laughing at somebody. So maybe that it could just be about Judaism. It could be about the faith. It could be about how we are. Yeah. For I... example, my favourite Jewish joke: two flies meet on a French car. One says to the other. Only on Simkas, which is which is one of my favourite jokes. And there's not much harm to be done. But if but if somebody non-Jewish told you that joke, how would you feel? Well, I'd find it a bit weird. First of all, I'd wonder how they knew what Simcha was and meant. <laughs> I mean, I in my comedy, I wouldn't start telling jokes about other races or religions. However, having said that, I'm going to completely contradict myself and say, actually, I do. Because I do actually, in my new show, I've got a joke. I'm not, that wasn't a plug, by the way. I've got a joke about a friend of mine, an Indian girl who her mother is Indian and I used to go round and the mother would always offer me food now when I tell this joke I 
act the mother. So I go, she's very, she's Indian, and she's Hindu, and, and I do the right. voice. I do the voice, and I do it because she's a real person, and I'm wanting to portray the situation yeah. in her. Her voice was key and crucial in the joke. I won't do it. But the point is, so then I do it. Now, that is potentially controversial because I'm portraying an Indian person with a strong Hindi accent, and I'm not Indian. The joke is, it's it's not against them, it's not against her, and it's very warm, I hope, and very... She's my best friend, in fact, and it's her mother. So the last thing I want to do is ridicule or make fun of, mm. of her. But the situation was fun. It was about her feeding me, and it's all about food, and it's actually very Jewish. So, and, and it almost mm. kind of re- reverse um, to that, then, Judy. If you, if you hear somebody who is Jewish telling a joke about another faith or a, another group of people. Do you cringe or do you take it on each thing on its merits? If it's funny, I must say I will laugh, total hypocrite. But when I do gigs, poetry, my poetry and sing songs, I'd say about 50% are Jewish-based and 50 aren't. And if I'm in a non-Jewish group, I'll read a lot of them from my poetry book, which has got a Jewish title and is very Jewish. And afterwards, maybe... I'll sell 10, 15 books to non-Jewish people because they just like the work and the work I do for them isn't going to be Jewish related so they'll know some isn't. The Jewish words are asterisk for the Jewish poems so they'll they'll understand. Isn't it important though that we're being quite general here and saying Jews telling jokes about non-Jews or non-Jews telling jokes about Jews... Surely the content is what's key here because there's a blogger in America who's, um, I, I can't mention his blog because it's quite explicit, uh, Mark Maron his name is, and he's not Jewish and he's got this joke on there and a Jew couldn't tell it, but it's a Jewish joke. I'll tell you what, the joke is this guy meets a woman in a bar and yeah. says, hi, what's your name? My name's Diane. Oh, nice to meet you, Diane. Um, and she says, look, I'll tell you straight off, I'm a nymphomaniac and I've got a thing for Jewish cowboys. And the guy says, hi, Diane, I'm Bucky Goldstein. You know, so it's, it's okay. so a Jew couldn't tell that because they've probably already got a Jewish surname. So it, 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 you have to be yeah. a non-Jew to tell that. Uh, the other day I was listening to a very old Desert Island disc and it was a Roy Plumley one to give you an idea. And they had Mel Brooks on. I have never heard anything so funny. He didn't tell Jewish jokes, but I don't think Roy Plumley was ever the same again. And he was so Jewish in how he spoke. It, it wasn't yeah. jokes, it was him. He was funny. I've encountered in joke telling, I get problems from people, Jewish people about my Jewish jokes. I am Jewish, I tell Jewish jokes, and they can be offensive, not intentionally, but to Jewish people. So that's where I would run into danger perhaps even more than making a so joke about another race or religion. So people come to you and say that actually a joke you've told on stage, they've paid to come to your gig, they know you're Jewish, they know you're a Jewish comedian, but something you have said has overstepped the mark in their view. Even coming from a Jewish comedian. But Jackie I, Mason yes, gets ha- told that, doesn't he, that he's too Jewish yeah. by Jewish people? I have had it. Now, I don't know if I've had it from people that have paid to come, but I've had it from people I might have been working with, working on a script with that are Jewish and said, mm. you can't do that. You what about the idea that? of it? Because there's the old, uh, there's, there's a Bernard Manning school, which is, it's all right because I offend everybody. And, and in most cases, there, there has to be a victim in jokes and there has to be somebody who is at the butt of the joke because that's usually what humour is. If you're just generally yes. offensive to everybody, yeah. there is now a debate, isn't there, about the right to be offended. Yeah. Does everybody have, there's, there's no such thing as 
is the right not to be offended. Well, I have a, a character who's a, a convert, an Essex girl, and she converts to Judaism. She's called Sandra Jaffa. That's not an attack on anyone called Jaffa. That's just her name. Or Sandra. <laughs> Very good. Or the entire orange industry. <laughs> Indeed, or Essex. And um, I tell this joke and uh, I start off, you know, I don't regret it. No, it's something I'd always wanted to do. Um, and it took me a long time to find the courage to do it. And now that I'm Jewish, I do feel a lot better, really. I've had a nose job. Used to be very small and upturned at the end of it, like a ski jump. But I've got a nice hook in it now, as you can see, and it's a lot wider at the bottom. And I can go like that. You're not going to see this on radio, but... Everyone can see I'm pulling a face, which is useful for Halloween. Now, I have been criticised massively for this joke because people have said it's anti-Semitic, you're perpetuating a negative stereotype of Mm. Jewish people having big noses, missing the point. The point is Mm. not that. The joke's not on the Jewish people, it's on Sandra, Mm. it's on the character and her stupidity, assuming that this is what you... It's actually, in some ways, it's, it's highlighting... That it's it's mocking all those people that think that that's what Jewish means. Yeah. It's not an attack against Jews, of course not. Why would I do that? Why but would I want to do that? Isn't the problem at the moment that we went from like the seventies where things like mind your language and bless this house and oh, yes. I know was it love thy neighbour was it yeah. and and there was some serious racism going on there yeah. but it was are all in the served? name of comedy. Are you being yeah. served in the name of comedy? And there's almost been a huge kickback now where it's gone. Right over the other side. And I think we're actually a bit too sensitive now. I don't know if you've seen the film Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. And he plays, in one of the scenes, in a barber shop, an old Jewish man. A black American oh, actor yes. is playing an old white Jewish man. And it's one of the greatest <laughs> really? scenes I've ever seen in the film. He's so funny. I mean, he tells the old joke about the soup. You know, the waiter, waiter, come and try the soup. No, it's all right, it's all right. no try the soup, waiter. What's wrong? Just try the soup. So the waiter says, where's the spoon? Uh (laughs) (laughs) It's genius, but that's... I I was not offended by that at all. I mean, you're right, it's gone to the other extreme. And the the problem is that if you're constantly censoring yourself and worried about what people are going to say, you can't can't write comedy. You You can't write. You just can't write because you're blocking it all the time and you'd never do anything. And I actually find a new wave of comedian at the moment very irritating. I won't name any names. There's a lot of comedians on TV who are very nice and very they don't want to offend and they're just so over the top politically correct that they're not very boring. funny. It's boring. And you can't do it without offending somebody somewhere somehow. Well, you just can't. Yeah. It's not possible because you are ridiculing, mocking gently as Jack, as you said about yeah. Jackie Mason. You know, people would no, be offended yeah. by him. So what does he do? Stop? Not do his work? I guess it might be my age, I don't know, but I do not find it funny when people swear in comedy routines. I've been to poetry gigs and comedy stores and places and the poet stands on stage, screams and yells a load of profanities and the audience is cheering and clapping. Mm. That's Such not funny. Such a base level humour though that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean look, the only person funny. I think that can really swear and is funny is Billy Connolly but that's half of his act. He's, he's a Glaswegian. And, and of course <laughs> the, the beauty of all comedy is every, everything in comedy is, is so subjective. I just yeah. wonder to, to, to both of you whether you, you get this sense that uh, obviously everyone has their own idea about what is funny and everyone has their own idea about historic what they grew up with in terms of mum, dad, uncles, aunts telling the jokes that you 
you understood as as a time from your youth. But in terms of, of, of how things are, in terms of how things are now, you mentioned about the face and the accent and the nose job and all the rest of it and the criticism that you had. Is there a valid argument that in some cases, when you have a Jewish comedian who is absolutely playing on every single Jewish stereotype that there is, that they may be adding some degree of fuel onto an anti-Semitic fire? Well, you know it's funny, Penelope. You know it is. But if I wasn't Jewish, I might just think you're being truthful. The, the problem is that you have to... You want to connect with an audience in order... You want to have a voice. If you stop because you're afraid of offending people, then that voice is gone. Then you can't make any waves. You can't do anything. If you start off by doing a little bit of a... I'm mocking myself. There's a bit where I go... There's a bit where she goes, you know, I do find it difficult to shout and I'm not very good at jumping cues, but I am working on it. You know, now... (laughs) So you say, eh, Jews don't jump cues, Jews don't shout. Well, you know, true, not all Jews shout. There are some that don't. I just don't know any of those ones. Okay, you know, man. I mean, no, but you see, and it goes on and on and on. I'm mocking myself, I'm mocking my family, I'm yeah, mocking that, my... that's okay for you la- as a Jew, you know, surely. I see both comedy... Com- it's a stereotype. But do you... But exactly what I was about to say, Penelope, and I was going to ask you, do you think... Because I have got the feeling that comedy and racism both based on stereotypes. So there's always going to be some kind of grey area there where what's funny and what's offensive. But without stereotyping, comedy's almost redundant because that's a lot of when it's character-based comedy. I mean, you, you do character-based. Is it based on stereotypes, what you do? Well... Look, there's a few bits here where you go, well, you're perpet- you know, you're saying that Jews are pushy, Jews are loud, Jews are shat, blah, 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 you know. And yes, a little bit, I am doing that a little bit. But then hopefully I can then, that's my starting point, and I can go on and be a little bit more complex, perhaps a bit cleverer, a bit more original. So, for example, there's one where I go, um, where she goes against what we're talking, you know, this shows another side. So it was a bit weird at first getting used to a kosher kitchen. But for all my meat bowls and meat plates... I've put little M in the middle of the plate just to remind myself. And then for all my milk bowls and milk plates, I've put little M in the middle of the plate. Okay? That's not a stereotype. And that's different. You would have to know about the culture in order to get that joke. Then it becomes more problematic. When I go to a Jewish club, one of the songs, if I'm doing poetry, I'll always do, I change the words to a waltzing Matilda to a shop that maybe none of you would know. It used to be in Oxford Street. It was called Gilders and it was a madam shop, a ladies dress shop. You slowed down at your peril and you were schlepped in. And the times I was schlepped in and I've written a song about it and they love it. The audience are in stitches because most of them have been past... And they know. know, We are out of time, sadly. That's where we have to end our discussion. But if you want to hear more of our guests, Penelope, I I heard you mention very briefly, you may have a show coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Simon. Yes, I will be on at the Leicester Square Theatre on Saturday, the 12th of March at 9pm in my new solo show, which is called I Was a dot 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 at the Royal Festival Hall I'm not going to say what that is because I don't want to offend anybody. Alright, thank you and uh, and also Judy if we want to hear you, find out more about you, how can we do it? Okay, well if anyone would like to see my book Tower of Bagels, Odes to Jewish Life they can find it on the Jewish Poetry website jewishpoetry.com or my website judyk.co.uk
Thank you, Adam. And also thank you to our guests today, the uh, comedian broadcaster Penelope Solomon and also founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now time for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz from Hendon Reform Synagogue. Jewish Book Week has arrived. It is one of the most keenly anticipated events in the Anglo-Jewish calendar. Over a period of eight days, at a number of London venues, a galaxy of authors present their most recently published books before some then move on to address audiences in other parts of the country. The books embrace fiction and non-fiction, biography and autobiography, history and contemporary. Many of the authors are household names, former Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, historian Simon Sharma, authors Frederick Raphael and Aleph Bet Yoshua. A number of the books focus on the Shoah. As authors wrestle with the moral conundrum, why do some devote their lives to evil, authorizing, facilitating, perpetrating mass murder, while others for example, Raoul Wallenberg, the subject of a new biography, risked not only their livelihoods, but their lives to promote good, save life. Author Frederick Raphael presents his book, Antisemitism, slender in size, but rich in personal and historic anecdotes, and even richer in controversy, as he suggests that for those today who promote pan-European unity, the Shoah, antisemitism, Israel are irritants. Jewish Book Week showcases more books on the Shoah than on Israel. One of the few exceptions is Ruth Conran's coffee table publication, Unexpected Israel. She forgoes discussion of Israel's existentialist political and religious issues in favor of 84 two-page, fascinating, feel-good, human interest stories about Israelis of different colors and religious affiliations. We Jews are known as people of the book. The book is the Torah and Bible scholar Aviva Zornberg presents two books which shed light and insight on aspects of the Torah. Lord Sachs in his masterful most recent book, Not in God's Name, warns that religiously motivated violence will be one of the defining battles of the 21st century. The books presented at Jewish Book Week are just a small example of books on Jewish interest subjects published every month. The medieval Spanish Hebrew poet Moshe Ben Ezra wrote, A book will join you in solitude, accompany you in exile, serve as a candle in the dark, and entertain you in your loneliness. It will do you good and ask no favor in return. It gives and does not take. Thank you to Rabbi Stephen Katz from Hendon Reform Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Aviva Trupp, Eve Kugler, Jill Pifnick, Mira Awad, Andrew Alexander. Thanks also to our Schmooze team, Penelope Solomon and Judy Carbritz, and of course our guest chair, Simon Lederman. Of course, we mustn't forget to thank you at home for listening as well. And we must thank our team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can search for us in iTunes. 
The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.